Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Her Moment in History. I'm Michelle. And I'm Grace. And this week's is psychology. Yeah. Which is a bit of a random one. Yeah. I actually can't remember how we came up with it. No. Yes, that's who we're doing. I'm going first in this episode and I'm going to go out there with the very obvious woman in psychology. (laughs) So I'm going to do Anna Freud. Is she his daughter or his wife? His daughter. But I don't think his wife took his name. Oh really? That's progressive. Yeah, because in like Anna Freud's research it says her mum name, like, I mean, I'm probably going to pronounce the name wrong, Martha Benes. So mm. it doesn't have Freud at the end of it. So I've specifically requested that, because we're going to probably be recording these two halves on two different days, but today that we are recording this um, is actually Anna Freud's birthday. Yay! Yay. So Anna Freud was born on the 3rd of December in Vienna mm-hmm. uh, in 1895. She was the youngest daughter of Sigmund Freud. He and uh, Martha Benes had six children. Wow. Which is a lot. Anything over three is a lot of children. Um, I always get concerned about psychologist children because I know that they can't get like permission to do certain tests or like studies on yeah. other people's children but they can do it on their own because they're the ones who are in control of it and some are really messed up so. <laughs> yeah I read it I remember reading a book about that once it was like a really really bad book and th- mm. it wasn't researched well at all but it did mention this psychologist who was doing a study on how like children find one another attractive Oh. Like, because like you're attracted to your own genes and something, and he was like researching if he had a son and a daughter, you know, would they find each other attractive? Mm. And he called one Romeo and called one Juliet. Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> I it didn't work, and the kids both changed their names when they grew up, which I find really funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's that's somebody completely different. Mm. But yeah, as well, like being the daughter of a Freud must be awful because obviously he like yeah. came up with the what's well, the Electra complex, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So, so like, (laughs) he had a daughter and he was like, I know what you want. She's gross. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So as a child, Anna didn't get on with her mum very well. Um, they had a very strange relationship and she didn't get on with her her older sister either, which kind of enforced Freud's whole, you know, air ideas of childhood, which mm. is, you know, I kind of hate that it enforced it so much. She was very jealous of her older sister. And from what I can tell, they were always kind of labelled as polar opposites of one another in terms of that Sophie, her sister, had the beauty and Anna would, had the brains, which mm. like, don't, don't do that to your kids. Like, no, let them don't. both be good at, at everything you don't need to like be like it's fine because you're you're creative so that's fine she would repeatedly be sent away for like to a hell camp from what I can infer where she'd yeah she'd kind of just go on a holiday to rest and then walk and to be fed because I think like when we look back at it now she most likely had like eating disorder that was caused by depression um. or like had both of them that you know would have played off one another so she'd just be sent away to like be fed oh. and then come home again I'm sure that was yeah, which is a bit of a vicious cycle. But she did admire her dad. And at, like, 14, she showed a real interest in um, psychoanalysis. Mm. She didn't really get on with, like, like schooling in the institution, mm. but she loved learning when uh, she listened to her dad and her dad's colleagues and friends. And that's kind of how she became educated. She did graduate in 1912 at 17. So I, yeah. I, I assume that's, like, high school age? 
Norwich. Yeah. But in Vienna, so what 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 you're doing in in Vienna in you know 1912, that's what she graduated from. Mm-hmm. But then she wasn't really sure what to do after that. She didn't kind of have anything that she really wanted to pursue. So she settled into teaching first as an apprentice in 1915, and then in 1917 at 22 she was then qualified enough to, as to work as a full time teacher. She worked as a prim- at a primary school and she really enjoyed it. And everybody said she was really really good at it. But then she contracted tuberculosis in 1920 and so had to stop that. Mm. Which I thought that would be kind of the thing that you'd, you'd go away, you'd recover and you'd be able to go back to. But she just never did. But while she was in recovery, she read like all of her dad's works and writings mm. and decided that she wanted to follow in his footsteps. And so she began working with him. She began, you know, working with her own patients. And by 1922, she was part of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society after writing a paper called Beating Fantasies and Daydreams. So she'd like earned her own way into that circle. I suppose, you know, her dad's link to it helped, but she'd, you know, she'd worked her way there herself. But when Sigmund was diagnosed with cancer in 1923, Anna kind of then took on a lot of the responsibility of like working at the Vienna Psychoanalytic Institute. And I think she also became his carer, but I didn't, I should have researched him as well to kind of understand his timeline. But I'm going to tell you, I just didn't. (laughs) And I actually have no idea when he died. That's how little I researched him. But I do know that she became his carer (laughs) after he was diagnosed. And then by 1925, she was then teaching child analysis and by 1927 had written a book about her own kind of analysis and like details of it. Mm -hmm. I know. So she was very much bit kind of working off of her dad's work Mm. um, but then expanding it and applying it and applying it further because obviously he kind of laid down you know a lot of ideas so where he'd kind of you know founded the idea of the ego and fleshed it out fully she was then kind of going further and explaining how, you know, a person's ego actually wards off depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. I know. And she also obviously very much focused on kind of like child analysis, was looking into the idea of like repression as a defence mechanism used by children. Mm -hmm. And it said like it's an impulse from such a young age that's so common. And, you know, there was a lot lot I didn't understand reading Mm -hmm. about this. (laughs) But from the very little that I was able to pick up on from my (laughs) A-level psychology, she was doing some cracking stuff, let's say. It was also around this time she'd formed a relationship with Dorothy Burlingham, who was an American who had separated from her husband mm-hmm. and so was now caring for her four children on her own. Oh. And then her son, yeah, I know, her son then developed this like weird skin condition, which everybody had told her was like psychosomatic. So mm-hmm. she moved to Vienna to be to have him treated. Whoa. I know. And initially he was treated, I think, by Sigmund Freud colleague and then was referred to Sigmund himself and then was referred to Anna I think Mm -hmm. is the kind of order it goes or was just referred to Sigmund and then just became friends with Anna Mm -hmm. after like because they were in the circle the son's condition did go away it never really explained much about what it was but she then stayed in Vienna because her and Anna had kind of formed this relationship that everybody else said was like a romantic relationship and that they were together Mm -hmm. but Anna Freud herself said it was never sexual so I suppose but it was, could still be romantic but it's kind of a bit blurry on yeah. the details but Anna did actually become the step parent of Dorothy's kids wow yeah <laughs> commitment <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So there was there was a little bit more than just like buds going yeah. on there. And Dorothy also found kind of a new love of psychoanalysis herself and mm. so kind of stuck around as well because it was the circle she wanted to immerse herself in and be educated in. So in 1937, Anna opened a nursery in Vienna for extremely deprived toddlers oh. um, in order to kind of help them and analyse them as well. There was always an al- analysis. It was yeah. There was a lot of like loveliness that she was trying to do, but there was always an analysis analysis as well (laughs) but then in 1938 the war was on the rise and Austria was occupied by the Nazis and they weren't very happy with the work that Freud you know the Freuds and their colleagues were doing and so they were all kind of they all had to go through an interrogation and a lot of questioning about what they were doing I suppose the reasons why and and what they were trying to to prove Mm. and it really worried them all to the point that Anna and her brother Martin had kind of this pact that if the interrogation got so torturous, Mm -hmm. then they would both kill themselves. And they had purchased the means to do so. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But that didn't happen. And they they neither, yeah, no, it didn't happen. And instead they sought help from a family friend who was called Ernest Jones and he then found a way for the the whole family to be moved to London Mm -hmm. to seek sanctuary there, which is then where they stayed throughout the war Anna opened up another nursery in London which cared for babies toddlers and infants who'd been separated from families because of the war and that like continued until the end of the war in 1945 and most of the staff that worked there were also kind of exiled from Austria and Germany mm-hmm. so it was quite nice that she was like yeah you, you like me we'll, we'll, uh, we'll all kind of yeah but then <laughs> there was a lot of data collecting obviously on the effects that this kind of deprivation had had on this, these children and they had collected enough data that Anna and I think Dorothy as well together had written like three papers over this time all about kind of the effect that being separated from families and the effect of war etc can have on children. So after the war finished this they continued their work and they established the Hampstead Child Therapy Course and Clinic in 1952 which was to train and also research and apparently it was like a fantastic place for learning that the people who went said it was fantastic and later it had links with the University College of London mm-hmm. so pretty prestigious mm-hmm. after Anna died that place then became the Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families so it's still oh. going now I think but now it's been named after her now so oh, that's her work nice. continues I know so in the 1950s and onwards Anna began travelling you know because now she was free to do so she'd go to lecture to like teach and visit friends like mainly to America and etc and her work was kind of she wanted to create like theories for each stage of a child's development from infancy to adolescence Mm -hmm. and wanted to look at what you know in quotes normal development was Mm -hmm. and kind of look at that against in quotes abnormal development to see if childhood disorders could be explained by those things which I suppose kind of also builds off Sigmund Freud's very famous kind of stages of development but I think Anna's were like a lot more in depth um and were mainly looking at like childhood disorders mm-hmm. and she was she really wanted to kind of share this work with anybody who came into contact with children so like teachers parents doctors literally anybody because she was like really trying to you know make sure that everybody had an understanding that the mm. things that happen to children affect them and that it's very important that each stage of a childhood's development they are treated well yeah oh. I know <laughs> and so then in the 1970 she actually went to teach a seminar or a series of seminars 
seminar at Yale Law School. Mm-hmm. And that then actually led to the kind of a discussion and later the ena- enactment of laws surrounding like a child's needs. And I, I can't remember the name of the, the, the things that were put in place. But basically they were to say that, you know, there needs to be things put in place to ensure that children's needs are met. Mm-hmm. Which bothers me that it was so late. That, yeah, it's but... ridiculous that it took that long. Yeah. Like... <laughs> in 1970, people are like, you know what, maybe we should put needs in place. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, oh, I guess so. It was also kind of during this time that she suffered a, a lot of personal loss. Mm. So, and I, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, so this will be spaced over like the 50s to the 70s. But no, in the 70s alone, oh my God. So her, her favourite brother, Ernest, her cousins, Henry Freud and Rosie Waldinger and colleagues, Heinz Hartmann and Max, I'm going to pronounce his surname wrong, Schier, I think it's called, or Schier, all died in 1970, like oh months God. apart. I know. And then two of Burlingham's children also died in the 1970s. So Robert, the eldest, had died from a heart disease um, mm. quite early on. And then Mary, or maybe I think must have been their nickname for her, mm-hmm. went to stay with Anna for a period of time. I can't remember quite why or how long. Mm-hmm. And committed suicide in Anna's home in, in 74. Oh my God. I know. Jesus. So, yeah. And then when you when you didn't think the decade could get much worse for her, Dorothy then died in 1979. Oh. I know. It, there's no details about how or, you know, anything about that. And then that's pretty much the, re- the research on her end. Anna herself then died, so in 1982, on October the 9th. She was 86 years old and she died in London. And she was cremated and her ashes are next to her parents in a specific Freud's corner um, <laughs> in uh, the Golders Green Crematorium. And they are also with Dorothy Burlingham's ashes. They are there as well. Oh, um, so, yeah. Nice. And I know. Four years after her death, her home in Hampstead was then transformed. She she kind of said through that she wanted this to happen. Mm-hmm. And it was turned into the Freud Museum and it's dedicated to her father. Oh. I know. Which I def- <laughs> it's like, I feel so sad that she was like, no, no, it's dedicated to him. It's like, yeah, but... She did so much it too. be dedicated to you. Yeah. Oh. But I know. It's, it's very, very short. There wasn't... I know a lot there was a lot of in-depth research mm-hmm. as to you know what she had done and the papers that she'd written and so you know do go up if you know psychology is something that you understand very well mm-hmm. <laughs> please do go and read her stuff but I didn't I didn't want to sit here and give you a psychology lecture for an hour so but no that that's Anna Freud so a fantastic you know psychologist yeah. in her own right but before I'd researched I kind of only knew her as Freud's daughter who also helped mm. but she really took on the responsibility after he got ill wait that's... I assumed he had children but I didn't know any of them like were famous in their own right yeah that's so good Aww. yeah that's that's Anna Freud mm. shall we take a break yeah this modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women I'm Lexi I'm Haley and I'm Alana and we're covering the good the bad and the ugly of women's history Tune in to Lady History every Thursday to hear about different ladies across history and cultures, from astronauts to zoologists. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Lady History Pod and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back. Welcome back. And so, who have you done for this episode? So I've done Mary Ainsworth. Okay. So she was born Mary Dinsmore Salter on the 1st of December 1913 in Glendale, Ohio, and she mm-hmm. was an American-Canadian developmental psychologist, quite similar to 
Yep. Anna in yeah. Children, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was the eldest of three daughters born to Mary and Charles Salter. Her father mm-hmm. had a master's degree and he worked at a manufacturing firm in Cincinnati. And her mother was trained as a nurse but then stopped doing that when she had kids. And they both were graduates of Dixon College, which is like a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So they had like a high value on like a liberal arts education and they wanted that for their children. And then in 1918, her father's firm transferred him to Toronto in Canada. And then that's where she spent the rest of her childhood. And she was always reading as a child. And from, like, her mom used to take her to the library once a week where she'd have to choose. But her mom had to approve of the book to make sure it was the appropriate level. (laughs) But she didn't, again, like Anna, didn't have a very good relationship with her mother which she later mm. analyzed as that it was a mother because she was quite close with her father so she just she thought that it was her mother was jealous of the bond that they had right okay yeah yeah i kind of always because when i was reading about obviously like anna's relationship with her mother because freud had said that girls are jealous of their mother mm-hmm. because of the relationship with the father so it, it's like very similar yeah to yeah. that and so she decided to become a psychologist when she was 15 after reading william mcdougall's book uh, character and the conduct of life oh my god <laughs> and then she at what age 15 bloody hell heavy reading for a 15 year old <laughs> Yeah. And then she began classes at 16 at the University of Toronto, and she was one of only five students to be admitted on the psychology course. And then she com- Oh my god. Yeah. She completed her bachelor's degree in 1935 and decided to continue her education at still at the Toronto University. And then she got a master's in 1936 and in a master, she was like her mentor was William E. Blatz. So he focused on studying security theory, mm-hmm. and it was a sort of about the different levels of dependence on parents, like the different oh. qualities of relationships with the parents that their kids have, and how that affects like future relationships that the children will have in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And then she got her PhD in 1939. And oh my gosh. It was entitled An Evaluation of Adjustment Based on the Concept of Security. Cool. So it's like working off that then. Yeah. Yeah. And it was basically saying that where family security is lacking, the individual is handicapped by the lack of a secure base from which to work. And then after graduating, she stayed as a teacher at the Toronto uni until 1942 where she joined the canadian women's army corps yeah and she began as an army examiner who interviewed and selected people to go into the army i think yeah like the first vetting process i suppose yeah and then she got promoted to advisor to the director and then she Mm. eventually reached the rank of major in in 1945 oh my god and then After the war, she returned to Toronto to continue teaching personality psychology. And then while she was teaching, she she met and married a graduate student called Leonard Ainsworth. Where she got the mm-hmm. name. That's my name, yep. Mm-hmm. And then they moved to London together in 1950 so he could do his PhD at the University of College London. So many connections. 
Oh, yeah, <laughs> I know. So, and it's around the same time as well. Mm. It's weird because it never crops up that about Anna Freud or anything. That they knew, yeah. yeah. And while she was in England, she joined the research team of John Bowlby at the Tavistock mm-hmm. Clinic. And they were investigating the effects of maternal separation on children and like how that affects development. Mm-hmm. She left the clinic in 1954 to do research in Africa, where she carried oh, out okay. yeah, her long, longitudinal field study of mother-infant in- interaction. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they went to Kampala, Uganda. Mm-hmm. She chose to examine a common weaning practice, like when they, yeah, they'd stop breastfeeding, yeah. that was common in the area. So what they would do is they'd send the child away for a few days to live with relatives so they could forget the breast. Oh, okay. And so... But then... But they didn't... Didn't they still need breastfeeding? I'm guessing they just used milk to do, like, okay. replace it. I'm sure they mm. weren't starving the children, hopefully. No, no, but I was like, would they instead... Would they be breastfed by somebody else in that in that period it doesn't say but i'm guessing not because they're trying to like wean them off it yeah so she conducted interviews with families from six villages in the surrounding area but Mm -hmm. obviously she couldn't speak the language so she learned the language too ah cool she could only sort of carry a simple conversation but still that she she made Mm -hmm. the effort to do that and then she said later that she she developed an appreciation for the culture and and that it's a pity that not everyone can do a field work study in like such a different environment. Aww. And then from all this study, she wrote a book called Infancy in Uganda, mm-hmm. which is all about the like mother infant relations. And it sort of it reflects on the universal characteristics that cross linguistics, cultural and geographic lines. Nice, I like it. <laughs> she left there too because her husband got a position as a forensic psychologist in Baltimore and oh oh my god yeah they moved around a lot mm. and then in 1958 she got a permanent position at the John Hopkins University which I think is in Baltimore as associate professor of developmental psychology very nice yeah whilst like she was there she kept in contact with John Bowlby and they would exchange papers and give each other like feedback mm-hmm. on stuff I like when, when people do that like mm-hmm. remember your roots yeah. And then she was invited. Yeah, she was invited back to London to talk about her work in Uganda, but it didn't get very good reaction from. Oh. Yeah. They said that there was an issue with her the definition of attachment that she that it didn't make sense that she was defining it as like behaviors of when the the baby will cry when the mother leaves the room or like they'll follow her and stuff like that and that's how she's defining attachment and they didn't like that yeah okay and then in 1960 her and leonard ainsworth got divorced but she kept the name oh pal move take his name from him And then in 1965, she designed, like, I think it's her most famous sort of theory, is this strange situation procedure. And it was a way to, like, assess different attachment behaviour by invoking stress in the children. But it's not, it's not a massive amount of stress. Like, so it was divided into eight episodes, which each lasted mm-hmm. for three minutes so the first episode the infant and his and their caregiver would enter into like a laboratory and there'd be toys and then after a minute a person would enter who they don't know and like mm-hmm. slowly try to make acquaintance with the 
child and then mm-hmm. the caregiver would leave for three minutes and they'd be with the stranger and then they'd return and then the caregiver departs for a second time and the stranger leaves to the completely alone for three minutes and then the mm-hmm. stranger enters back in and tries to offer comfort to the infant and then the caregiver returns and like picks up the baby and it's done i think i remember actually like studying this really uh, yeah at school oh because we were doing about like separation deprivation mm. at one point i think i remember i remember it, be, it really confusing me because there was so much like <laughs> back and forth and who was who and there was so yeah. many words and so many names yeah, yeah. and so because she did it on 26 children to start with and she mm-hmm. would place them into three classifications of like how they responded and so mm-hmm. one was the anxious avoidant insecure attachment yeah which is it all coming back to you now i say i remember <laughs> this now yeah which is they would sort of in- ignore or avoid the caregiver and they wouldn't show much emotion at all and mm-hmm. they wouldn't explore regardless of who was there and they found this quite puzzling at the time because they didn't really understand it but then later on when they put heart rate monitors on the infants they realized that they were having stressful reactions they just weren't visibly showing it mm-hmm. and then the next one is secure attachment which the child is very securely attached to the mother, flexible freely when the caregiver is present, and they'll use them as like a safe base. And then mm-hmm. they'll engage with the stranger only when the caregiver is present, and they'll be upset when they. And mm-hmm. the seventy percent of middle class babies present a secure attachment in the US. And then the last one is anxious, resistant, insecure attachment, which shows like they just distressed from the whole thing before they've even been separated they're very clingy they're just not settling and a lot of the time this they had to stop the experiment because it was too like distressing for the child Mm. Um, and one percent of infants had this and then a fourth category was added in 1990 which Ainsworth like approved of even though she didn't Mm-hmm. make it and it was they just have no symptom of coping mechanisms that they'd mm-hmm. like be confused when they were reunited with their caregiver and they just and they they found out that they just were producing a lot more cortisol levels naturally and that was sort mm-hmm. of causing that but to the whole thing there was still criticism i suppose there always is though yeah to be fair and they said that there was too much emphasis on the mother and it didn't measure a general attachment style Mm -hmm. and all her work was done on middle class american families yeah that was gonna be my next question yeah so it's like limited yeah it'd be interesting to kind of do that again yeah but with a wider range yeah maybe they have which is the case with so so many yeah studies i know then when they like they did the the Milgram, the electric shock one, mm. with like people who weren't all men and people who weren't all white and people who weren't all raised in like I'm gonna get this word wrong. Is it McCarthyism? Yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of time period. Like the results are completely different, but because he did the study that once. Everyone remembers the results from that time that he did it. And it's like, it's very, very different if you do it on more people. Yeah, I know. I don't like the ones where they use animals. Like with the, I know this one they did, I think it was a monkey. And they took the mother Mm. away and they gave 
like a wire, oh, hollow. a wire monkey, was it? Yeah, it was because they wanted to see if if you attach to somebody who can give you comfort or somebody who can give you food. Yeah, and so like the wire monkey had a bottle, so that was the feeding, and then there was another monkey that was like made of that's soft, so it felt like yeah. a blanket. Yeah, and all of the monkeys just went for the 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 soft one instead. Yeah, didn't so, they yeah. starve or kids. something? They just feed them. Yeah, I didn't know it was that severe. I just know that they they spent a lot more time with the. Oh, the... I hope they didn't stop. I yeah. So she spent a, a a long tenure at John Hopkins University. I think she went to some others, and then she eventually settled at University of Virginia in 1975, where she mm-hmm. stayed until she like her academic career. Like she, I think she retired in 1980 in 1984. Actually, well, she says she becomes a professor emeritus. I'm not sure what that is. And she stayed active until the year of 1992. I'm guessing it's one that like they're not doing like set classes. They'll just be in yeah. in and out, not really full-time mm-hmm. maybe i suppose she's, she's not like actively working you know in a team on a thesis you know full-time she's kind of yeah yeah oh and i missed something out about john hopkins so she didn't mm. she wasn't really treated as equally as the men what i know shocking why not and so like they just at the start she was worth a lot higher role and a higher position than they gave her Mm -hmm. and she had to wait two years to then apply to be associate professor even though like her qualifications easily surpassed it and like she should have just been given that from the start and like at the time the women would have to eat in separate dining rooms to the men what the fuck i know And so that that meant that women couldn't meet, like, the head of departments to sort of make connections. Oh, casually, yeah. yeah. In, in, like, the traditional I mean, I like, hate way. networking, but it, it is helpful. Yeah. Yes. Why, though? I don't understand the eating thing. Like, did, were they worried that, like, male professors would get too aroused from the way a woman ate a banana and he wouldn't be able to focus on his work? Probably. Genuinely. Ah, ah. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. pretty sure that was it. I just... Oh, it's annoying. It's ridiculous. Mm. And she was awarded many awards throughout her life. Good. The Stanley Hall Award for Developmental Psychology in 1984, an award for Distinguished Contributions to Child Development in 1985 from the American Psychological Association, and she was elected a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1992. Ooh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she died on March 21st, 1999, at the age of 85 due to a stroke. That's so recent. I know. And then um, in 2002, there was a, a review of general psychology, and she was ranked as the 97th most cited psychologist of the 20th century. A lot of those will be from children sitting their exams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I need to go get my notes out now and see what I wrote about mm-hmm. the study. But that's incredible. Mm. And that's Mary Ainsworth. Very good choice. It's still I still can't get over that they ate in separate dining rooms. It's just it's weird. Like I just don't. No doubt. Who put that? Yeah. A woman served them the food. Yeah, but I don't like. Was it a thing where? Because I, obviously I assumed that men would have had a dining hall, and then when women joined the university, somebody had to say right, so they eat separate, right? Yeah. Like that had to be a conversation that somebody genuinely said of mm. well they have to eat separate ridiculous very ridiculous do you have any recommendations for this week i do my recommendation is a book i am reading i'm 
not very far into it yet. It's called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue mm-hmm. by V.E. Schwab. Oh, I, I knew that. Schwab. Yes, she's a very famous um, author. She's, how have I forgotten everything she's written? Um, Like in, um, like she has been, but then uh, she's uh, written this book and this is the one I'm reading at the moment and I'm really, really enjoying it. It's written beautifully and it's like about this woman, coincidentally, Addie, uh, Addie LaRue, who kind of makes a deal when she's younger that she will live forever Mm. but that everybody she ever encounters will forget her instantly and so that's that's where she's at so like she can't write her own name and like she she wakes up in the bed of somebody she's obviously like spent the night with and she knows that they'll just instantly forget her and she's like yep that's that's how it goes so if you heard crackling then that was my cat scratching the sofa (laughs) i heard i heard something and then all of a sudden you were like oh look down look up (laughs) yeah she shouldn't have been doing that but i didn't want to disrupt you it's fine. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really interesting. I will read it. <laughs> what, is your, what is your recommendation for this week? I mean, it's actually a book that you recommended to me, like, two years ago. Okay. <laughs> it's The Power by Naomi Alderman. <gasps> yes. It's so good. It's like, it is. women that... get electrical powers, and then chaos ensues, pretty much. That was our, uh, we had a, a book club. I know, and I only just read two it. Two years ago. <laughs> recommend a book <laughs> and we all there was five of us and we all recommended the book and we all recommended a film and we had to go away i think it was for the summer mm-hmm. and we had to read and we had to watch all of it and nobody else did i was the only one who did and i came back like right so we're going to discuss all of this all this literature that we've read and everyone was like nah i didn't do any of it i think i did too i'm glad you finally got there <laughs> yeah oh thank you <laughs> But I do remember reading one that, I mean, and, and you know who this is, that somebody had recommended and I, I came back and I was like, I didn't enjoy it, but I'm like, I will discuss it. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't discuss it. They were just like, it's just my favourite. And I'm like, but why is it your favourite? They're like, because it's just so good. I'm like, explain, yeah. explain it to me. And they're, they're like, I just loved it. I was like, okay, <laughs> I can't. That's fine. But I'm really glad that you're enjoying it though. No, it's so good. It is. I really like that it, the way it, it kind of flicks about because it's, it's told from, is it four or five different people's? Yeah, I think so. Kind of, it follows them. And it's really clever that, like, who they pick to, mm-hmm. to follow. Yeah. Mm. Great book. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for listening. <laughs> yes. And we shall see you, hear you, speak at you next time. Yes. Bye. Bye.